Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. God, I feel weird singing that even after six years. It's just bizarre. You know, I think some of you don't know that that's a song, like a like from the 80s. Anyway, I'm just uh, flying off the seat of my pants today. I am so excited to be bringing you all a conversation with Dr. Nadira Hill. I met Nadira, I realized, first in Athens, though I think we barely met, but we did. And then again in Vancouver when we were together for a Peopling the Past colloquium, which was so much fun and introduced me to so many brilliant people. And anyway, we went out for drinks after and Nadir was like, I studied drinking culture in ancient Greece. And I was like, excuse you? And anyway, that's what Nadir is here to talk about today. We talked about just drinking broadly in ancient Greece wine culture the like nitty gritty on on I mean honestly everything it it, Nadira went into the realities of like just homes in ancient Greece because she has worked on uh, archaeological sites just excavating homes like utterly fascinating daily life type stuff plus you know what the ancient Greeks drank what they didn't drink or might not have drank as it will come to pass I am so obsessed with ancient Greek drinking vessels that it was also a chance for me to ask 
as many questions as possible about what we know or don't know about those and kind of how common they were in the everyday home. Uh, We had such a fun conversation. I think it's just perfect for this time of year. Like, let's look back at 2,500 years of boozing it up. You know, the ancient Greeks, they love their wine. That's what comes out of this episode. And I'm really excited for you all to hear it. Let's get right into it. Conversations. Wandering through wine culture. Ancient Greek drinking with Dr. Nadira Hill. In my notes, I just kind of was like, we're talking about drinking, which was just so exciting enough. So you like what about this kind of like drinking culture? Do you did you study? I don't know if it's something that you're still working on or you just like have done a lot on it. Um, But yeah, like what what about it? And like what interests you? Like I just I love all that shit. Um, Ancient Greek and their obsession with wine slash whatever Mm -hmm. else. I'm down. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, that's a great question um, to start with. And and honestly, not something I have ever I don't think ever been asked um, before um which is strange um but I don't really talk about my work very much um which is also very strange to me um because you know I spent seven years writing this dissertation about it and um have never well maybe never not never but very rarely uh talk about my work um because I'm all you know I'm doing other things that I think interest people a little bit more and kind of eclipses my work but anyway those um, people are wrong uh <laughs> I'm just like literally I don't even remember how it came up but you just like told me something about drinking and I was like oh my god please come on this show and talk about it like yeah that's so fun <laughs> yeah and yeah funny enough like when we met right I was not talking about my research no. I was talking about the other things that I do but but back to your question I guess um so the thing that I really really interested me initially right is the symposium right the Greek symposium the all-male drinking party uh with a bunch of asterisks after it um like that was that was what I I was really interested in from like I mean basically the beginning of my graduate um uh, career my graduate program at Michigan um I was really interested in that I I kept seeing it everywhere I kept reading about it um and then at a certain point I don't know when exactly it happened I realized that that's all I ever read about was like that's all I ever saw when it came to Greek drinking was the symposium. And I was like, okay, but like, what about all the other people that obviously lived in Greece at the same time? Um, And I wanted to, I wanted to know more about that, but I wasn't seeing a lot of scholarship or anyone really talking about um, that subject. Um, Sometimes I would see people talking about like drinking in public spaces, like taverns and, um, and bars and brothels and things like that. But I never, saw it in um, the private space um, of the house, of the Greek house. So since I started working on projects uh, that concerned Greek houses, I was like, okay, like, someone needs to figure out what's going on with all of the other people. Like, how are other people drinking besides these men, um, these elite men, uh, especially, like, the symposium cannot have been the only place where anyone was drinking. Um, and so that's kind of where I, uh, I began <laughs> my, my interest began. 
Um, and I, I, I decided that I was going to figure it out. I was going to figure out what, how other people were drinking, where, I guess the rest is history. I wrote an entire dissertation on it. No, I love that. And like, I think that's the story of so much of ancient Greece, right? Is like, but what about people who weren't rich, elite, and in Athens? Like, what about literally everyone else? Because I don't know enough about the symposium, but like, I imagine it's predominantly Athenian. And in terms of like our sourcing, it's predominantly Athenian, like so many things. And yeah, like, I mean, I can only imagine like literally everyone else existed. Like, what were they doing? We know everyone drank wine more than like almost anything else. So, like, yeah, what was kind of going on there? I yeah, like I did like some really basic research into drinking before I wrote little bits of my cocktail book for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, and there was so it was hard to find a lot of stuff. And so I focused a lot on talking about symposia because like that's what I could find as just like little old me who also, you know, had to write a cocktail book in a month. So like, you know, there wasn't much to be easily found on my end. So I'm like, I'm glad to hear other people have also wondered that. Like <laughs> what, like, I'm trying to even think of like what to ask. Cause I just kind of want to know everything, but I mean, like drinking vessels have always really interested me, but they also feel like something that is like very linked to symposia because they're so mm -hmm. fancy and like i imagine people had you know lots of different types of drinking vessels but the stuff we think of like the really richly decorated like kylakis and kentharo and stuff like i were regular people drinking from fancy shit all the time like did they have their own stuff like what do we know <laughs> yeah yeah that's um that's definitely something that i i kind of addressed in my in my dissertation because I really love uh pottery and um funny uh, funny enough um at the beginning of writing my dissertation and doing my research I was very much against looking at the de the decorated pottery because I was like I don't care about that I only care about like the very technical um aspects of pottery production like I don't care about decoration I don't want to talk about that and then of course I wrote an entire chapter on <laughs> decorated pottery um so so yeah so I definitely looked at I looked at the the different shapes and the different uh decoration because you know of, of course not all uh Greek pottery especially drinking pottery was decorated um in like the richly like red figured vases that we tend to associate with the symposium like those shapes um were also a lot of those shapes were produced um especially in the fourth century in black gloss um so they i i consider those to be like a plainer version of the more richly decorated ones um and then i didn't really get into like plain plain um undecorated wares but um like there are definitely other shapes um that were produced in the in yeah, and plainware um, that were undecorated that may have been used for drinking because, um, you know, with with everything in the Greek world, like they probably had multiple uses, right? Even though they may resemble things that, um, like for example, we might call it something a bowl. Um, it could have been used also for drinking. So, um, trying to kind of broaden our perspective of of what was used um, in these contexts, but also thinking um, more broadly about where these drinking cups that we tend to associate with um, the symposium or any wine related shape like craters and mixing bowls and serving vessels um, that tend to be closely associated with the, the symposium, the formal symposium. And, and what I tried to do is like look at their distribution more broadly across um, houses um, and spaces in Athens and at Olynthos in northern Greece to to really think about you know is there uh, really a, a very specific correlation between the Greek symposium and these shapes um, or were they used more widely and I found that it seems like they're used more widely than um, in these very specific types of spaces or contexts. 
That's really interesting. Just immediately made me think of all of those ones that are decorated with like the kind of stuff that to me feels so directly linked to symposia. Like I don't want to just jump straight to like the people playing like Kodobos, but like mm-hmm. I love that too. But yeah. then all the like erotic decorated stuff where you'd like finish drinking your wine out of this kylix and then there's like just a big dick at the bottom like Mm -hmm. was that more linked to symposia or was like that kind of stuff even more broad like was that in just sort of regular people's houses yeah yeah that's that's actually a really interesting question that i didn't really address so i i mostly um i found in general like when i was looking at the pots um I can't remember off the top of my head now because it was so long ago that I wrote that that chapter. Um, what what specific kinds of parameters I used for the the because of, of course there are lots of lots and lots and lots of different kinds of scenes as you've yeah. already mentioned you, some that you I didn't, didn't just lay it out at. by dicks. Yes, yeah. like, <laughs> weird uh, weird that in your dissertation you didn't say like how many normal people had dicks on the bottom of their glasses. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I think. <laughs> I think actually the thing that I focused on were um, depictions of symposia on or what we think are symposia on vases. So, of course, yes, there are lots and lots of different kinds of decoration, um, you know, of of various um, scenes, various images um, that I I think would be an interesting project, um, you know, in in the realm of the um, of drinking, Greek drinking um, to to think about like the distribution of those images too, um, in the same way that I was thinking about distribution of shape, um, because, right, I was looking at the distribution of a very specific type of scene, so scenes of people drinking together. Um, but yeah, that would be really interesting to kind of you know add on to that um, uh, with thinking about these different kinds of scenes and thinking, you know, are certain types of scenes particularly in demand in in these different contexts um because yeah yeah if we if we tend to associate those um like traditionally those um various scenes or some scenes with all male (laughs) drinking parties right it would be so cool to see like yeah (laughs) this this vase that has a dick on inside of the cup right that could be like found somewhere else in like a house that like or you know anywhere um that you're like oh wow like what what were they doing in this house yeah, I just like the idea of it being like a really normal family home of just like, you know, like a husband and wife, maybe a couple of kids and like all of their, you know, all of their pottery is like weirdly erotic because I don't know, maybe they ended up with it or something. I don't know. I just like I because obviously I'm not coming at any of this from a scholarship perspective. I just like encounter all of it in so many different ways. And so I just I'm just always in awe of the stuff that they put on pottery so specifically because some of it's the most beautiful, like mythological scenes, you know, storytelling. And then some of it's like the most bizarre sex scene ever. And you're just like, well, that's (laughs) just on a, on a glass. Like, why not? You know, I'm using the word glass loosely, but (laughs) so like you were looking at shapes then too. So, I mean, uh, like I know like a handful of, of shapes from again, my like minimal research, but is there, like certain types that were like maybe a bit more like normal, you know, for everyday people versus like a, like a, from a fancier party kind of perspective. Um, I think broadly I was thinking, I was trying to, to look at patterns of, uh, consumption of different 
traditionally some potted shapes in uh, like in Athens versus in, cause as you mentioned before, right? Athens is kind of like the the center of all of these this evidence we have for the symposium, um, and I wanted to compare that to somewhere that's not Athens. So I worked um, on a lot of material from um, from the site of Olynthos in northern Greece, and broadly speaking, I think the 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 types of shapes that they were consuming was very different. Like was in general, quite different from what we we tend to see in Athens, um, which initially I thought maybe it was because like they just were not drinking in the same way as I mean, and it, they probably weren't. Um, but um, the main thing that I noticed was that uh, like kylikes, these stemmed cups, um, are not very common in uh, northern Greece in general, um, and that may be because you know they're not using them as frequently as we you know assume they are used um, in Greek symposia. Um, or it could be a, a, a chronological issue uh, where um, most of the evidence that we have of people drinking from Kylikes in Athens is from the 5th century, whereas in the 4th century it goes out of um, kind of fashion. It goes out of fashion. There's not as many of them being produced even in Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible that because Olympus is a little bit of a later site, um, they're not using those kinds of cups anymore. They're not producing them. They're not importing them either. Um, because no one is making them. Um, so that's uh, kind of the broad pattern that I noticed. In terms of what kinds of shapes are found kind of in, in spaces that are more characteristically sympotic versus not, um, I think the distribution was pretty even. Um, like in terms of the different shapes that I was looking at, I looked at, um, I think, uh, numbers evade me, but at least five or six different shape types of shapes, including um, craters. Um, uh, so mix the, the you know the big mixing bowls uh, mm. for wine, and that was really interesting. And in that like there are, I looked at decorated craters. I looked at um, just plain black gloss ones, and there were a few um, undecorated ones, um, and tried to see if I could uh, match those up with different kinds of space. And that also, mm. um, was not as clear as one might expect, right? You, if you are looking for a sympotic space, you might expect to find a crater, but sometimes there isn't one, even though like the architecture might suggest that this space was used that way. Um, so that raises questions of like, uh, in, in the case where you don't have a crater in a clearly architecturally distinct um, sympotic space what are they mi- like they must be mixing their wine with uh with water somehow so what mm-hmm. are they using maybe a metal vessel that tends to be the 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 traditional uh, interpretation um but you know that we don't have evidence of them so like how do how can we know for sure um and then the opposite um you know thinking about you know if everyone is drinking wine um as we all tend to expect if there's no crater in like a normal house, but they have drinking vessels, you know, what are they mixing their wine with? Or even, you know, you can go even further. And as I did um, start thinking about this, like, are they mixing their wine at all? Right. Yeah. Like, n- there's no reason why they have to. <laughs> are they <laughs> super drunk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So maybe they would be the ones that have uh, the more erotic paintings in their <laughs> house. You know, who knows? <laughs> the fun ones. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of like that, that quote, um from like that it's a fragment of like eubolos i think right um mm-hmm. do you know the one i'm talking about where he talks about like it's a quote from dionysus talking about like the levels of getting drunk during right. a party yeah like how much wine you're mixing i just mm-hmm. those kinds of things fill me with such joy of yeah. like 
just the the way they talked about just drinking culture, I guess, is like this deeply normal thing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's so fun kind of in comparison to like a North American kind of mentality where like obviously drinking is like really common, but it mm-hmm. still has this. There's like a very different mentality over like, of course we drink because it's like how we hydrate ourselves, except it's just usually wine and like yeah. maybe there's water in there. <laughs> like, It's just I don't know. It's so fun. I, I just I'm always fascinated by the the volume of of these shapes. And I think, you know, somebody like me who's just coming across this stuff, like random stuff I'm reading or like, you know, museums and things mm-hmm. like you tend to think of like the the fancier stuff. Right. Um, and so the the piece that's just coming to my mind. Um, so I would just be curious to know if they're like common or totally rare because they seem like they have to be rare. Is like those super um, like the the animal shaped right ons. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the correct plural of right on is but like the and like you know you're, you're holding like a goat head that's actually a drinking glass like you can't really set it down because it needs like a base that yeah. it doesn't have like were do we think those were common do you know or are they just so impractical they had to have been for like very special <laughs> occasions <laughs> that yeah i did um i wrote a term paper many years ago on Raita. Um I think I think the plural is Raita with an A. Sounds, um, <laughs> um uh, specifically yeah the like a- the attic ones that are shaped like animals. And I think I'm trying to remember, I think it's mm, there's a there's a person I don't want to get their name wrong, but I think it's Miller. Um, she wrote a book on like Athens and Persia um, and like the influence of like Persian culture on Athens mm. um, and specifically looked at um, like various various aspects of um, Athenian culture. Um, but I, th- I remember there being a chapter um, or at least a section about specifically about Attic Rita uh, and how that like transformation um, was achieved. So like um, so like these animal headed cups come from um, from like Persian culture um, and, you know, generally the same region. Um, and they're ado- they're made originally in like precious metals like silver, um, but they are like adopted into Athenian, into the Athenian repertoire of, of vessels. And that's kind of how they come to be, <laughs> but they're different, right? Like they are um, traditionally not meant to be set down. And we have also examples um, from earlier periods in the Bronze Age as well. Um, but the ones in Athens, most of them are, they do have a handle, right, to make it easier to, to pick them up. Um, and they do often have a base on them because, again, right, they need to be drank uh, or used in these very specific contexts that, you know, require, like, reclining and on whatever kind of furniture, maybe, um, uh, maybe a couch, maybe the, the a mattress on the ground, you know, what what have you. Um, and there are also often tables, right? So you need to set your, your cup down um, as you would with any other kind of cup. Um, but I do not know how common they are. I don't think they are very common. Um, although every time I go to a museum, I always find another one, which is wild. <laughs> and they're all different shapes, which is like, are there any repeat shapes? That would be yeah. something interesting to, to know. Um, but from my perspective of like looking at so many um so many different shapes that are pretty that are like really common um and even some that like don't seem to be very common like a bolsol like most people do not know what a bolsol is they've probably never heard of it um (laughs) but they are very common in the fourth century so it's like Mm. they just kind of appear but but raita i don't 
think are very common. Um, and it would be interesting to to look into that shape um, and and figure out first of all like why like why did they want to make this shape in the first <laughs> place? Um, the range the range of of um, animals or other kinds of images because I mean there are also some that are that are like in the shape of human heads too like mm. there's one that i can remember that's like dionysus's face and the satyr's face and things like that um yeah. that are also vessels um and then uh so the range of shapes and then also yeah just like yeah how many are there just out there like and and the context that they've been found in because that would probably help us get a sense of you know if they're found in graves then maybe they weren't used very frequently mm-hmm. um but if they're found in settlements um that might suggest that they were um you they were actually used in these various drinking parties what kinds of drinking parties we wouldn't really necessarily be able to tell but um but yeah that that would definitely be something um interesting to look into i don't know if anyone's done that research i'm sure there's someone out there that has noticed and maybe done something with it but if not i mean that would be a really really interesting project yeah, I mean, they're just so pretty, too. And, like, I'm mm-hmm. glad you mentioned the Bronze Age ones, too, because that's what I was going to bring up when you said that, you know, that the Attic ones kind of come from Persia, because that's really interesting mm-hmm. that they come from Persia. Because, yeah, the like, I mean, I think of a lot of the ones that I've seen, you know, in the in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. But I also think of the ones that are on Crete, like, in mm-hmm. the Heraclion Museum, because those are really interesting. Like, because they have, like, the bull's head right on that's really <laughs> popular to the point where I did get it tattooed on me, which is why I think of it. <laughs> but like, it's like just a full blown statue of bull's head. And then you mm-hmm. have to like actually know that it's a right on because no part of it, just looking at it, can you even like see where you drink from, which I love. Yeah. Cause it's like, whatever the angles are that it's positioned, like you can't tell that that is a good drinking vessel. It's just a bull's head statue. And then yeah. you're like, wait, it, we drink from that. What? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's a, it- I think the topic is definitely more complicated than just, yeah, like, I mean, I did just say that, like, the idea probably, like, the inspiration probably came from Persia or, um, you know, somewhere in that region. Um, But that's in the fifth century, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. just like one proposition, whereas definitely we have, we have animal headed cups called Rita already um, in the Bronze Age in Greece. Um, mm-hmm. They do look very different. Um, they so do, there yeah. are there are more similarities, I think, between like the Attic ones of the fifth century and like Persian vessels um, versus yeah, between Athens and the Bronze Age. So the idea definitely was there, but like I mean, like I said, someone who knows more probably has has made this connection already and like can explain it better than I can. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah, but yeah, that's a really good point. And I actually had students this um, semester have to write about, um, like in like detail and like um, analyze the bull's head riton from Crete, mm. from Knossos, and like so many of them were like talking about like where the the openings were mm-hmm. in it, and I was like, I had no idea because <laughs> I have never looked at it that closely. But like, I think I think one of the openings like in the chin, which is oh. wild to me because like you yeah. can't see it in any of the photos that you ever look at but yeah. yeah there's one in the chin and I think there's one like on like in the head at the top of the head somewhere yeah that's yeah. what I would have assumed too yeah because you can't you can't see it from like the angle that it's displayed or the photos yeah no and like to be clear I'm not trying to like put you on the spot with the Persia thing I think it's really <laughs> interesting because like because you're right like and you know what the what listeners might not know but like the ones on Crete that look like a bull head because there's a couple of them I know like I think one though is in the National Archaeological Museum but 
but they do look really different. Like they don't have, they don't look like drinking vessels. Whereas the attic ones, like it might be like a donkey's head in a really fun way, but it is very clearly like it has a handle, you know, where to hold it. It Mm -hmm. again would still be very impractical to put down, I think, but like, and very top heavy, but you can tell obviously that it's a drinking vessel. So yeah, it's like, they are quite different. And then when you mentioned the heads thing too, like that reminded me there's a lot of those ones, or I don't know if there's a lot, but I know I've seen like, there's very famous pictures of the ones where it's like they've depicted people from Africa too. And they've got mm-hmm. like, like really interesting kind of, I don't know, just like get their, their like kind of exploration on like people to, that they've encountered with. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of stuff that I feel like when you look at it now, sometimes something about it <laughs> screams racist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, I know that it, it probably wasn't because it's the c- context to us that makes it seem like it, should be I don't even know but I'm sure yeah. you know the ones I'm talking about <laughs> yeah and I think honestly like I yeah I've I've heard many talks about this and I know like um uh, there are there are people out there that have done more research into this um and that have like done like really good research into this like um I think um Najee Olia um at William and Mary he has I think his dissertation was on um on a lot of um uh, this kind of topic. Um, mm. and so he probably looked very closely into this. I, I, I'm very bad at reading people's dissertations because I don't even want to read mine. Um, but I've I am, never read one. So there's literally <laughs> no judgment here to be very clear. <laughs> but like he, he is definitely a person that I, I think like com- that comes to mind when I think of like vase painting and, um, depictions of Africans and, and art, uh, in antiquity, um, but like I said, there are, there are several people that I can think of, um, that have done that, that mm-hmm. kind of research. And I mean, it's, it is really interesting to like, think about, um, cause yes, there, you know, there are, um, there are some specific things that come to mind for us. Like, yeah, the, like, it's like, oh, that's, that's shocking and like kind of racist, but also like, if we think about it, like in the context of like what was happening in antiquity and like what their experiences were, like, it may be. A little bit different from what we uh immediately you know think of but mm-hmm. um but yeah there's some interesting nuance there um mm-hmm. uh, for sure yeah yeah it feels to me that like and I don't you know I'm not gonna make that the, this whole topic obviously but like it feels to me that that the things that would make us like specifically as North Americans but I think generally as like the western countries that were like involved in slavery um like that there are so, the, so, the things that make it that those look racist are like the things that have been created in the last like five to 600 years that then, you know, are racist now, but like obviously weren't back then. So it's just really interesting to kind of, I don't think about that stuff broadly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just, the idea that they were like making drinking vessels out of like heads, be they human or animal. (laughs) I just, they were just weirdly creative with pottery in a way. (laughs) that is so interesting. Um, And like the head ones too, I think they're like often double sided. There's Mm -hmm. like a face on each side. Anyway, sorry. Now I'm just like constantly yeah. just like imagining I, all the different things. <laughs> I think my favorite Raiton that I've ever seen, and I can't remember where I saw it, but there was one that I saw that was in the shape of a lobster claw. And that yeah. was <laughs> that was very cool to me. <laughs> I mean, they just made some really weird pottery back then, and I love them for it. <laughs> I am 
the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My favorite thing is going through like the really tiny regional museums or just the ones that are like attached to different sites. Like the one that's coming to my mind is like at Karamaikos. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously, you know, those are, are tied to, to funeral, funeral, you know, um, procedures. That's the wrong word. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a, it's a cemetery. Um, but like some of the stuff that, that are found there are really interesting. Uh, and they just like, they just make such weird stuff and it like doesn't make it into the big museums and you just get to see this like bizarre little thing made of pottery, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're drinking out of it or not. They just, I'm just t- typically just in awe of the weird stuff, uh, the Greeks did, which yeah. is why I was excited, particularly for this, uh, conversation. But, <laughs> 
I want, okay. So drinking generally, like, did, did you look mostly at the drinking vessels themselves or, or like, do you know, you know, much about what they drank, if anything, beyond wine? Like, that's something I've always been interested in. And I feel like, I mean, what little Googling I've done has like minimal answers. Like I know in the East that they had things that weren't wine and I imagine it made into Greece, but it, it feels to me that like wine was still like very much like the dominant thing to drink. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the chapter that I wrote that was about like, yeah, answering the question of like, okay, if they, if they didn't have a crater, like what were they drinking? Were they drinking wine? Were they drinking something else? And I, I think the only thing I looked into was beer Mm -hmm. and from, yeah, from like the few articles and books that I could find, it seemed pretty conclusively decided that that greeks didn't drink beer okay but i i am not super convinced um and i i don't think a lot i i can't remember exactly but i i get the feeling just from like trying to think back to when i wrote that chapter uh and and did that research i don't think there was a lot of archaeological evidence and i think it it becomes it's very difficult to like be super certain about the kinds of things that they're drinking because the process of doing like the analysis of the cups has to be done right when you take it out of the ground like you have mm. to analyze like the soil inside of the vessel and the soil around and get like the analysis kind of immediately so it's mm-hmm. not really super possible uh from what i understand to do that kind of analysis later um mm. after it's already been cleaned and you know conserved and all of that um so so yeah from what i understand it it beer even though like neighboring regions definitely were drinking beer it doesn't seem like it it infiltrated very much into greece or at all um Mm -hmm. which which i found really interesting because if we're thinking about greek cities and i tried to be very careful about how i was how i was wording this like you know i'm not talking about greek people necessarily Mm -hmm. i'm talking about the people who live in greek cities which is different because not everyone living in greece is technically Greek or mm-hmm. adhering to what we believe generally Greeks did um, and drank and, you know, uh, and believed. So I, I'm i not super convinced that no one was drinking beer or yeah. anything else, really, right? Like, it's possible that like, there were some people who, like, had immigrated or uh, from these neighboring regions that drank beer and that's all they knew and they came to Greece and they lived in Greece and they were maybe drinking beer, right, in their house because they wanted to do that rather mm-hmm. than drinking wine, which I do, I am convinced that most, if not everyone, um, that was Greek um, was probably drinking wine of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that everyone was mixing their wine with water. I mean, I think many of them probably were, but I also think there are, is um like you have to think about like social divisions too right like elites mm-hmm. probably drink differently um or dr- drink different things than lower class people right they had access they had different different access to different things right we um there's lots of research about different kinds of wine that were uh that was um moving around the mediterranean um in the 5th and 4th centuries but it's you know they're there's different qualities of wine even today, right? And not mm-hmm. everyone, like, I can't buy, like, a $300 bottle of wine, right? I'm going to buy, like, a $20 bottle of wine. So it's, like, I think it's the same kind of thing in antiquity um, and in, like, 5th and 4th century Greece specifically. Like, I think, um, yeah, thinking about 
even though I don't have you know a specific answer, um, I think it's certainly possible that people were drinking other things than wine um, and also drinking their wine differently. But um, I don't know that there's been a lot of specific evidence for that. Um, mm -hmm. One of the questions that came up when I was writing the chapter where I talk about uh, possibilities of other things that people are drinking was milk. <laughs> Very yeah. specifically, someone asked me if they were drinking milk. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> so, like, I mean, honestly, there could be a lot of other options out there that I had not considered. Um, but I'm maybe someone out there has considered. Yeah. I would have never thought about milk. I am not a milk drinker. <laughs> like yeah, the idea that it, like anyone just sits down and drinks a glass of milk to me is bizarre. Yeah, me too. Just, yeah. <laughs> like, right. Oh, people do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I grew up with a lactose intolerant mother and it shows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's so interesting. But like, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Like, what are the chances that no one drank beer? Like, <laughs> it was a multicultural area. And if, like, I don't know enough about elsewhere, but Egypt had a lot of beer, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they were heavy on beer. Yeah. So, I mean, the likelihood that, like, no one in Greece is drinking beer, that seems like uh, the biggest stretch to say yeah. with any kind of confidence. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, yeah, like, you have to think, again, as always, like, where like where are they getting their evidence from, right? Okay. If, if they are using archaeological evidence, like, <laughs> is it safe to say they probably were looking at Athens? <laughs> because that, I think... <laughs> In terms of, like, proximity to places that drink beer, I think, like, Thrace maybe was also a place that drank beer. Mm -hmm. Like, Northern Greece is right there. Like, they're knocking on their door. It's very likely that some people from Thrace were living in, in Greece and drinking beer. But if they're not looking there for that evidence, then, of course, there's going to be no evidence that anyone was drinking beer. So... Again, problem with Athens being the center of everything. I love Athens. <laughs> I, I, will go, I go there as often as I can but it, it is yeah definitely a, a scholarly issue when it comes to thinking about Greek drinking I mean when it comes to thinking about like most things especially mm -hmm. when you're outside of of academia too because like every time you look for anything like it predominantly is just about Athens but everyone's like Greece and you're like that <laughs> that's Athens okay yeah. cool like it's like I mean I'm so guilty of it you know in the early days of the podcast before I knew better and where to look and everything like you know all my knowledge on like the treatment of women and stuff is based in Athens and oh Athens was pretty shitty to women like you know it, it makes yeah. it seem like everyone was but <laughs> pretty <laughs> Athenian like yeah it's so interesting and to, I, I love Athens too it's the fucking best Mm -hmm. But also, I would like to know more about elsewhere. <laughs> uh, but I have a friend who studies Thrace. So now I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to like mark that down. It's like a thing to ask her when she comes on the show. Because like, I mean, yeah, it seems to me that, you yeah, know, that Thrace or that, you know, like Lesbos or Lemnos or Chios, like any of those, those Eastern islands or, mm -hmm. or like the parts of modern Turkey that were full on, you know, Greek at the time, mm -hmm. like what is, what is the likelihood that everyone's like, Oh, you passed into a Hellenic city state. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody drinks anything <laughs> but wine here. Like it also like, you know, I'm not an archeologist, uh, you know, but I took two classes over 10 <laughs> years ago. So, but like, it, it seems to me that also saying, saying with, with any kind of like certainty, um, like definitively saying anything didn't happen. Mm -hmm is pretty like of a, a bit much of a stretch. Like how can you prove something didn't happen? You know? Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, an argument from absence is not <laughs> is not a valid argument in most yeah. cases. <laughs> and like, just feels like logical. Like they're going to drink other things. One thing I feel like comes across, you know, as like a kind of common. It seems like it's probably a common misconception. I should say, like, is that wine was one of like the only things they drank? Like, did they? Do we know if they were just like regularly drinking water? Like, I feel like I heard somewhere 20 years ago that like the water made them sick. So they mixed it with wine. But I realize I have like no idea where that would have come from or if it has any validity or if I just like heard a thing once when I was a child and it stuck. Yeah, I feel like I heard the same thing. So it's probably written somewhere. Yeah, it's probably (laughs) written somewhere and someone said that and like we all just have collectively remembered it. Um, I think that sounds like the same thing that I heard. Um, I have not heard anything different, but uh, I mean, they're using it like like if it's if it's making them sick i don't like i don't understand why they would be putting it in their wine yeah how does that how does that work i don't i mean i'm not a chemist i don't know how how any of that works but um yeah it is yeah it's interesting but it seems in general that people were not drinking water anywhere ever so (laughs) um but i have not i don't know I don't know anyone that that studies like water in antiquity. <laughs> so I don't really I don't know how that would have worked, but like I mean they're using water for like all kinds of things, right? Like you know, they're uh, in the Roman world they're piping it in like, over like thousands of of meters, I guess, but you know, like I mean, I yeah, I guess I don't have an answer. <laughs> like I guess no. that's like where I'm where I'm going is like I don't I don't know yeah. if anyone was drinking water. <laughs> No, and I, like, yeah, love when people don't have an answer, too, because it's just more like, I just like to theorize on this shit, and I'm like, I'm just going to theorize on it to you, uh, but I'm also really glad that you had also like, heard this, because as mm-hmm. soon as I was saying it, I was like, where the fuck did I hear that from? <laughs> like, is that based in literally anything? I have no idea, uh, but I don't sound completely crazy, so I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what kind of other stuff, you know... You know, whether you have, like, uh, in-depth details or not still. Um, But, like, what other stuff did you study when it comes to just, like, this idea of, like, drinking culture? Like, do we know if they had other specific types of drinking parties that we, you know, know details of that, like, weren't symposia or what? Like, yeah. Yeah, I... (laughs) I don't know specifically um, if anything has been, like explicitly said anywhere um because i mean even the symposium right is like very tenuous um we we have some written sources that talk about i mean like plato symposium is the obvious one um you know it's called the symposium so we should assume that is a symposium um but like other kinds of drinking are not really specific or at least from what i understand are not like explicitly spelled out um, because I think too, right? We're we're looking at all of these sources with our symposium go- goggles on, so everything we see is a symposium, unless otherwise, mm. you know, explicitly stated. Um, so, like, yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, I believe um, that people were having other kinds of drinking parties um, all the time, uh, but they are much harder to find archaeologically and much harder to characterize archaeologically because. I mean, you know, the symposium is so popular a subject because, you know, all of the evidence is like kind of is is obvious, right? Like we have or it appears to be obvious, like we have archaeologically distinct spaces. We have um, like mosaics and decorated rooms and, you know, 
evidence that they were reclining on couches and um, we have these descriptions and texts and it all and images on vases, right? Like they, it all seems to point to this very specific type of drinking party. Um, but like looking at like the distribution of pottery um, in relation to these spaces and thinking about, you know, think trying to think more broadly about like what, like what kinds of other people lived in Greek cities um, and all the other types of people that could be drinking, right. You know, at any given time, I think really helped um, to at least sort of, try to come up with a picture of other types of drinking parties, um, less formal ones. You know, I just, I don't know that I ever like explicitly gave anything a name. Um, but you know, just like <laughs> thinking of it as kind of a spectrum in the same way that we think, you know, if you think of drinking in any context today, right? Like you can, you can have a formal di dinner party and have drinks there. You can go out to a bar, you can have an informal other kind, any other kind of party, right? Um, and you can drink in various um, contexts. I mean, like, I'm having a drink right now talking to you, right? Like, any kind of context. There's only two people here, and we're not even in the same space. Um, so, Me like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, thinking about, I think it's more in a way conceptual at this point. Um, obviously, like, I did try to find archaeological evidence that supports these ideas. Um, and I did, I mean, I did come up with kind of a, a model for, for identifying other kinds of drinking, like beyond the symposium by looking at the pottery, by looking at the architecture. Um, but giving it all an, like names is, is very difficult. Um, and I think too, like the term symposium is very um, problematic itself because it, it comes with its own baggage, right? Like we assume that it is just one thing and that it is um, tied to all of these other um, activities and objects and spaces when in fact it probably wasn't that rigid. Um, and especially not, you know, if we're thinking about it in the context of Athens, it's probably not the same anywhere else in the Greek world um, if they were calling it a symposium too. So um, yeah, so essentially I have not, gotten to I, ne I never found any specific evidence that like explicitly said like this is some other kind of drinking um I just I tend to drink I, or tend to drink I tend to, think <laughs> about, I tend to think about like drinking like I I when I when I talk about drinking in my in my dissertation and in general when I talk about drinking I like to just call it group drinking in general and then like think about it as like more or less formal um and then, like, I'm sure over time I will, as I do more research and, and think more about it, like, maybe I'll be able to assign more specific kind of parameters and, and uh, labels to them. But I hesitate to put labels on things because that's that's how we got into this mess in the first place, by calling it a symposium. Um, but yeah, something that I found really interesting, but I could not at all find any specific evidence for is women drinking. Because as we said before, right, it, we can assume that everyone was drinking. So why not women too? <laughs> um, but as it turns out, it is very, very difficult to find specific archaeological evidence for women drinking. Who would have known? Who would have thought? <laughs> That's so wild. But also just to like, I want to talk about this women idea. I mean, if there, even though there's nothing. Um, but but of course, you know, what you're saying, too, but not being able to put a label on things like that makes so much sense. You know, like we wouldn't know. It would be so hard to tell what they're doing, like in any kind of, yeah, like 
rigid kind of set thing and then I imagine yeah it'd be really easy to fall into like the symposium of it all which is that you just like make these assumptions and now I can't stop thinking about like Plato's symposium being like an assumption about symposia broadly because it's the most absurd and like I like the idea of like that's what every single one was like Mm -hmm. let's talk about uh gender and sexuality in the most bizarre and fascinating (laughs) of ways and that's just that's entirely what symposia are for um (laughs) but like yeah I mean the idea that we have like no evidence for women drinking is fucking hilarious like it it just feels like such a great like encapsulation of of so much when it comes to studying this stuff like they Mm. just didn't (laughs) <laughs> like, I, I, like mm, they were just all really dehydrated like and even more so than the fact that like people are only drinking wine like imagine how dehydrated you would be i just can't fathom it yeah uh yeah like oh my god w- women well, the nerve <laughs> i i will say there isn't there isn't no evidence for women drinking there are there are images on vases of women drinking but of course, um, they have all been interpreted as prostitutes. Drink. I was going to say heteri. Oh, <laughs> so great. Like, okay, but like, why can't why 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 can't it be just a normal woman drinking wine? Like, I don't understand. Um, so I I don't know that anyone has revisited this. I think um, like Rebecca Fudo Kennedy wrote an article a while ago about heteri specifically, um, and that's kind of. I think that was really the jumping off point for me, like thinking more broadly about who's living in these cities. Because, right, like if you're from somewhere else and you bring your woman to Greece and you live in Greece and like you're used to drinking with your your wife or your sister or whoever in this other place, why not continue to do that? Like who is policing you in your house, right? Um, And so, so yeah, so I think like I would really love to try and find some way to prove that that this was happening because it's so frustrating to like find out someone is talking about this this vase i'm like well this is such a weird vase like why are these women drinking like no one like we don't have any texts that say this and then it's suddenly like all about prostitutes and not at all giving women credit for like just having a nice time with their gal pals right (laughs) the the like the leap to call every single woman in any single thing a hetera is like my just like constant <laughs> battle within everything I read. Like the because it, it, I know that you know even symposia like they're all male, but then often there were hetera there, mm-hmm. and you're like mm, cool. Like we get to call it all male, like except for the women who were there, I guess, for sex or just like companionship. You know, they weren't always there for sex, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's just this idea that like. The assumption seems to be, you know, and then, of course, I know this is changing, but it is still so locked into this, you know, subject is that like every single woman in a public space had to have been a sex worker in some way, mm-hmm. like be she heteri or, or porn eye or like whatever level. But like there's no possible way that any woman in a space <laughs> like was not somehow trading sex for something else. Mm-hmm. And it's just wild and uh, of course like i also like to complain every time i have to talk about hetera like just the fact that the word means companion and when it is referred to as a man we tend to say things like like i know a lot of the um because patroclus is called that so often and he's always like comrade or like (laughs) friend or like it's something and then as soon as it's a woman it's like no no she traded sex for stuff like (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) 
but yeah i mean that's that's i wish that was surprising like okay no if a woman is drinking somewhere she's a hetera i mean i assume that this would be so hard but i imagine that because you're you know you're looking at like the ancient greek home and and especially when you're you know looking at olympos is the site you were saying right yeah, yeah. um like i just am so curious about normal people like just regular everyday people and i you know i I understand that that's like often one of the hardest things I think to understand because the whole point about like being regular or like in other words, poor is that like you probably don't leave a lot for people to find or it gets destroyed before anyone can find it. Um, But that's just so interesting to me is like what regular people were doing. Like, I mean, you've talked a little bit about that and everything, but did you learn anything really interesting about kind of like what regular normal people did? Like, I mean, even beyond drinking, just like in your your work on like, I know when we met, you were going to work in Greece on like just a house or something, mm-hmm. which just seems so fascinating. <laughs> so I was just like, I would love to know like anything about regular people, if you know, fascinating things. <laughs> Everything's fascinating, to be clear. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I, I have not, I, I don't understand it at all. Or like, have I haven't really seen any of the results of it, because I think it's still happening um but something that i would be really interesting interested in finding out more about um is like what people were eating um Mm. because that's something that we like i mean in general the project that i worked on uh, and still work on uh, at olympus um did a lot of um like sampling of the soil to like be able to do these analysis these scientific analysis um that tell us like what kinds of like food and starches and things that they were eating um i guess it was i think it was called starch analysis <laughs> but like we were not allowed to eat around the the trenches at all because it would mess up the the analysis which was a little frustrating at first but like i get it now um but that would be really interesting because i mean i think the main thing that people tend to think about like when you're thinking about food is like bones and like seeds and things that survive but uh, like that's a really like in-depth kind of analysis of like the different kinds of like in general like what kinds of food people were eating so I would be really interested to find that out um and then there's also like uh, an analysis of like the like kind of crushed up stuff that like is left behind um also like in like the floor so like whenever we reach a floor level in like any of the rooms or any of the trenches we're in we always would have to like take a like sample the entire floor um all of the the dirt that was there that was found um and then there's one person um that usually worked with like assistants um that would go through all of the material that came out of that um so like little little teeny teeny bits of things um from everything from like little organic matter to little pieces of pottery to little um, like i think once they found like a little miniature like hydria like a little like a little baby water jar (laughs) that was like like, it was amazing but like the like the little crushed up stuff that like gets like ground up into the floor is also really interesting because it's like all of that stuff in general would be missed right because if you're just digging right you only see the big stuff so i think that's really interesting like just to get a sense of like yeah all of the stuff that I mean, if you think about, I mean, we vacuum our houses or sweep our houses now, but like if you think about all of the stuff that you drop or all of the things that could accumulate on your floor over time, and then like suddenly, like you're you abandon your house or your house collapses and then it all, and then somebody comes and digs it up, right? All of that stuff that's accumulated in the floor um, can tell us a lot about 
like what you were doing like at that time or like, you know, what that space was used for. Um, so, I mean, I don't do either of these kinds of analyses, um, but those things are really interesting for like thinking about, especially how space is used. Um, yeah. And the kinds of things people eat. I'm, I mean, obviously I like, I work on wine, but like, I'm not, a, I'm not doing it from a scientific perspective. Um, so like those kinds of analysis um, are really interesting for thinking about everyday people um because you're you're thinking about like everyone in the house not just like the elite men who probably were drinking on on a day-to-day basis so yeah i think those are the main things i would say um i don't know if those are super super cool or interesting but they're they're interesting to me (laughs) no but I love that so much. Like, I think the thing, it's so interesting talking to experts like yourself because I think that stuff like that, like, obviously not, you know, like the way you're talking about it, you know, I can tell, like, it's not, you know, you just said you're, it's not like what you study directly, but like, I think that, that like people who are in archaeology or even just like just historians broadly, like, you just think that's like a, oh, yeah, you know, like that thing. Like, I think that's something that <laughs> it just is like a thing that you encounter. But meanwhile, I'm just sitting here being like, oh, my God, you, <laughs> of course, like you would want to know every single fucking thing that fell on the floor. Like, holy shit. Think of the stuff we can learn from that. And so, mm-hmm. like, I just I love these moments because I think, yeah, I think you, you underestimate how interesting fucking everything is because like it's you just live in that world. And I'm just sitting here like fuck that's so cool but also like my favorite thing about this podcast is that like my listeners who are by and large not academics and just but like want to hear this shit so i'm mm-hmm. so glad you brought that up it's like i think that's fascinating and i couldn't help but think about my <laughs> apartment <laughs> my adhd brain and like how much more i should vacuum uh and how if that you know if someone was to come in and study whatever i left behind it would be like fucking cat letter that my cat dragged around and that like I, you know, I didn't sweep up every single day. So there's a few pieces uh, or, you know, the tiny bits of popcorn that I need to vacuum off my carpet from like, I feel, watching I feel TV. That. Yeah, I actually, I, I will admit that I came, I, I thought of that specifically because I looked over to to my, to the left and I was like, wow, I need to vacuum my carpet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that, that's the thing that we, that we can find. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. And like, literally, my apartment, somebody would be like, "Well, she had a cat, and she probably could have cleaned more." Like, this is like <laughs> number one thing. I will say, we never say, we never think that. I mean, well, I don't know if anyone thinks that, but we never say that out loud when we are excavating. <laughs> well, thankfully, you know, like you've got like twenty five hundred gears in between. I feel like there's like a little less judgment, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's so interesting. Like completely selfishly i'm also working on a novel uh, that's like i will i'm a nerd for history so it's mythology but i'm like uh, it's gonna be like you know as like pseudo historical as possible because i want to like just be nerdy Mm -hmm. um and so you know like i thought about certain things like i also you know i'm not gonna go that in depth but i'm already like oh my god oh like the little things in like the floor or the kitchen like i just i love the idea of normality I just think normality is something that is so often not like ignored, but just like we don't think about it like regular people who are reading about ancient Greece or mm-hmm. or mythology. Like you don't think about regular life. You think about the myths. <laughs> Those are absurd. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, it's it's wars, it's art. And that's like the art's amazing for sure. But you don't get a sense of like what regular people were just like existing and doing on the day-to-day or like leaving shit on their floor or (laughs) 
I just think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think I am definitely. I was definitely dazzled by like the exceptional things from the very beginning. But yeah, I've definitely come to appreciate the little things now. Um, and just like yeah, thinking about all of these other people that lived, and you're like, okay, but like, like what were they doing? Because it's it is really it's really hard to find. Um, that kind of evidence and like think about these people because yeah like they're they don't stand out as much but um but yeah I think we're really trying like to to do that to like you know a lot of projects now are really trying to focus on like the big picture and um for uh everyday life and um like I'm I'm really happy that I was able to become a part of this project and then now uh, I work at Pella where we're kind of doing the same sorts of things like we're looking for um a house uh, in the Hellenistic period, um, and like thinking about the same sorts of things. So yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, um, also to me <laughs> to, to be looking for evidence of these just regular people and, and like trying to bring out their perspectives a bit more. Um, because yeah, we, we tend to focus on the things that are most obvious to us, like the symposium. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's my favorite part of just like, like having people like you on to talk. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned Rebecca Fudo Kennedy, and like she came on to talk about um just like foreign people and women in Athens really specifically and that was just so interesting because we do get like at least a little bit more of a sense of 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 like a regular person because they were a foreigner so they had this like exceptional status that Mm -hmm. then we can like track and that's so interesting um but yeah I mean I also just think that like especially you know in the the environment in which we currently live uh specifically as north americans but i think just generally the west in Mm -hmm. 2023 like like i'm just an angry leftist and the idea that like all we ever know is the elite is really annoying when i think about it like in our in our modern context like if 2500 years from now people are judging all of north america based on what the fuck jeff bezos is doing like i'm gonna be pissed you know (laughs) so like i'm just i then like translate that to the ancient world and be like okay i wonder what i wonder what the normal people were doing the people who didn't go to symposia because they were not loaded in athens and demand (laughs) and like so yeah i just even if we don't have the answers like i just love the idea that they were looking for them or that like somebody is looking for them and you know it's my oh my god just like choking on myself um I just seriously love that I get to talk to people like you who like research this stuff because this stuff like doesn't it stays in the academy a lot of the time you know like it's in papers it's in like 200 hundred dollar books that no one knows that they want to pick up because why would you have access to even knowing that exists Mm -hmm. um and so yeah like this just leads me to I swear I do it in like every conversation it's just like (laughs) it's fucking cool that people want to come on my show and tell me this stuff uh and that the people want to listen and therefore it is validating to me to uh, bother you enough to, to come onto the show. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's just really nerdy and cool. Um, like, do you have like a favorite um, thing that you learned doing, doing your dissertation, like in terms of the drinking culture? Like, is there something that you just still think about longingly? I don't know why I use the word <laughs> longingly, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, this is like, I feel like it's it's a very obvious thing, but I never really thought about it until I was writing my dissertation. But like the amount of like resources and labor that go into just building an andron or like a formal dining room in a house, um, it ne- like for all this time, right? Like I I was reading about symposia, I knew all about all of these things, and I was digging at Olynthos, and I I saw like examples of these these formal dining rooms, but it never occurred to me that that is very much a, um, a a clear symbol of one's status and one's mm. wealth. Um, to be able to have a space like that, and like there are not they're not super uncommon, I would say. Um, like there, I think there are. There are, I want to say maybe, 
definitely more than 10. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but there are a lot of them at Alanthos um, compared with like the number of houses that were excavated. Mm. So it's like, surely like, like that requires a lot of, of time and money to create something like that in your house, whether you have it put in, you know, from the beginning when it's constructed or you add it in later, which um, happened in some places. So thinking about, um, or in some houses, so thinking about like the, the different, like, and I, I did think about this, um, the different levels of expenditure that went into like creating, um, you know, different sizes of these spaces. Um, some of them would be built with like different, um, different walls, like the wall, like the blocks used in the wall might be a little bit nicer than others. Um, the decoration of the mosaics inside might, um, are very different and different. So like there are like, there are ones that depict figures and like figural scenes, mythological scenes. There are ones that are just geometric. Um, and then there are also ones that are just like plain, like cement floors. So thinking about that in terms of like levels of expenditure and wealth and status, um, I thought was really interesting um, because I had never thought about it in that much detail before. And I was like, oh, like that actually makes a lot of sense. Like why we might um, tie these spaces very specifically to symposia. Cause you know, if we're thinking of symposia as these, um, very exclusive drinking parties that it makes sense right for these spaces to be associated with this very specific group um, at least some of the time because I think too um, another thing that I learned uh, kind of through my research is that there are some people that believe and I believe it now too that like these spaces were not just used for these drinking parties all the time like I mean, it's like today, right? Like you might have a, a dining room in your house or any kind of room, but like it may be used for a drinking party or a party for like one night, but like the rest of the day, right? It could be used for many other things. Um, so I think like one uh, one scholar um, noted that they found evidence of like weaving equipment in in one of these spaces before. So it's possible that it was used by women, right? So it's, it's very interesting. Like this is why I, I'm always pro everything is multifunctional, including space and, and objects. Cause right. Like you can't just say like this space was used only by men all of the time, because that's like, <laughs> like it's just not efficient. Right. Like why would they have done that? And it's the same now, right. It's like, why would you have it for, like, I don't know anyone that has a formal dining room. <laughs> like, like if you have one, you're probably using it for other things now. Like no one is just like blocking off one room all of the time and they don't touch it ever. Right. <laughs> like, I think that's a very, um, I mean, it's definitely a modern thing. Cause I remember having in my childhood home, a space that we did not touch, um, except on special occasions, but like, for, but now, right. Like no one does that. <laughs> so I think that's like very important to remember is that space as well as objects are very multifunctional. So again, right. That, that notion of a symposium kind of, becomes more problematic um it'll in you know more ways uh than we've already <laughs> noted i'm so glad i asked that that's fucking fascinating um so okay i'm just gonna like <laughs> try to weave through how many questions i have uh like that one it sounds like the beer thing you know this like assumption that like oh they only use them for this one thing mm -hmm. um I, I'm going to generalize because I'm allowed. Uh, I recognize that as an <laughs> academic, you probably wouldn't. But it just sounds like an old white man thing to say when they are researching this shit. It's just like, this is the thing I found. I connect it with my personal life experience in some <laughs> kind of way. And thus, like, that's the 
for sure answer instead of just like one small part of what is probably a much larger answer. Like it just feels like the hetera thing. It feels like the mm-hmm. beer thing. It's just like all women are sex workers and all dining rooms are used for symposia and Greeks only drink wine. Um, but like, okay. The dining room. That's so interesting. <laughs> Were mosaic floors really common in Greece? Like I know, I think a lot of the evidence that we tend to have is from later, like Hellenistic and on, and then into the Roman period. Mm-hmm. My obsession tends to be with classical and archaic. So maybe it's just like it's later. Like were mosaic floors like really popular in like, not obviously not like a, a poor person's house, but like in like a semi-wealthy person's house? So um, like I said, I can't remember the exact number of them. I think it's definitely... Like there, uh, there, um, of course, are in um, these traditionally sympathetic spaces in Androns for sure. Um, very often, um, we also find them in um, in some courtyards. So courtyards could be could have mosaics in them uh, in the fifth, fourth century. Um, and Olynthos, there are a couple examples of that. Um, some houses had more than one. Um, mosaic in them so like you might have one in your andron and you might have one in the um in the courtyard both in the same house or you could have multiple uh dining rooms in your house um so that means uh multiple mosaics um i definitely think they are more common as you say in later periods um as they become kind of um the spaces become more elaborately decorated in general and the house becomes more um, like there's more attention to that kind of detail. I think it's more limited in the fifth and fourth centuries. Um, and that's probably why we don't see them as much, um, earlier, but I do think they become, uh, mosaics become more popular and, and, um, more elaborate. Um, cause in the fifth and fourth centuries, they're just kind of like, you know, uh, pebble mosaics, um, very, <laughs> very simple, simplistic kinds of designs. Um, there, like I said, there are some figural designs, but they're not like super common. They, um, cause I'm sure they probably take a lot more time and, yeah. and effort to create, but, um, but yeah, I think Adelinthos, they are, they're not, they are common, but not like the most common, right? Like most houses do not have, um, any kind of decoration at all, but I think it becomes more common as you, as you say, um, in like the Hellenistic and Roman periods. That's so, I fucking love that. Sorry. I'm like obsessively taking notes, but yeah, so that's so interesting and then it made me just think of like other really like normal spaces um in in ancient greek homes like do we know much about like their kitchen functions um i'm trying not to ask you questions but i immediately them and like be like oh my god i'm gonna put this in my novel because i promise it's also interesting to everybody um but like I, i'm so fascinated by that and of, i imagine it would like fall under that kind of purview of drinking mm-hmm. um but now I'm just generally obsessed with like ancient Greek houses. Sorry, you opened up uh, Pandora's jar. As you we'll should be. Right? I'm always trying to convert people. Well, oh, great. I'm here. Um, but yeah, like just the this idea of this formal dining room is really interesting to me. Um, but like when it comes to kitchens, like were they very much, you know, obviously we're, we're going to be talking about like when it comes to places with Androns generally is like a level of wealth, I imagine, um, in order to have something like that. So I imagine that would also correspond to like you know, servants and things, but like when it comes to kitchens, were they like, do we know if they were a space that was primarily reserved entirely for servants? Like, was it a normal household kind of thing amongst regular people? Like, I realize I don't know enough about just like daily kind of life stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I get the feeling. So I didn't look 
obviously I focused on this very specific circumstance um and I do I like now that I'm thinking about it like I do wish I had looked more into like family things because I think I think in my own education um through grad school like there's not really as much from what I understand and what I learned like there's not as much about like Greek families as there are about Roman families like oh, I yeah, think like so many things yeah, I, I took a whole class on, like, like Roman women from birth to death. <laughs> so, like, you know, like, I learned about the whole gamut. Like, I ran the whole gamut of, of Roman family. Um, but I don't think I have ever studied in as much detail Greek families. And I wonder if that's because there's not as much, like, detailed information about, like, Greek families as a whole and, like, how that um, operated. Like, ob yeah, like, they're, they, you know, not... Uh, I, I, the way that I understand it, right, is that, like, there were, there was definitely, like, you know, the, the household it, itself, the family itself, and then there were other people that were in, in the household, like, servants and enslaved peoples, right, that, you know, also were in the house. Um, I don't think the, the space was as, like, delimited in the same way as later Roman houses were, um, from what I have seen and, and the research that I've done of the houses that I've looked at, um, from Olynthos, like, it, and other places of the same, uh, relatively the same period, um, mostly, like, the house as a whole is pretty much the same, like, I mean, yes, there's, like, usually the one or two spaces that are, like, more elaborately decorated tend to be associated with formal drinking, but, I mean, I don't think, like, most of the rest of the house, right, is exactly the same. So, like, trying to separate out, like, I like I keep saying, right, like, the whole house is, is basically multifunctional. I, I would assume that everyone was always everywhere, right? Like, I don't think that, like, anyone was ever separated from anyone else. Um, I think the, the, the division was more public, like, outside versus inside versus, like, mm. rather than, um, like, the people inside being separated from each other because it's so central uh, or centrally organized, um, right? Like um, Greek houses of the fifth century and the fourth century were organized around a courtyard. Um, so like you had to go like through the courtyard in order to access any of the other spaces. Um, so it was very much like, I think the, the division was very much like everybody outside of the household was, was controlled um, and then like the people inside of the house, like generally mingled. And I mean, maybe they used, um, like the same spaces at different times, um, of the day. Um, like I said, like with the, uh, the formal dining room, the Andron, it's possible that it was used at at least some of the time by other people besides men drinking, right? Like it could have been a, you know, a good space for weaving. It could have been a space for grinding, uh, grinding grain for food, um, you know, depending on the season and, and um, the time of day. Um, so I think it's my understanding, um, but I could be missing something because um, I didn't get into like the the household in general um, in terms of the people um, so much in my dissertation, which I'm now realizing I probably should have thought more about, but I will make a note and I will definitely come back to it for the book. Um, but um but it would be interesting to know like how much information there is because um, like I said, like it seems like there's, I mean, as with most things, there's way more um, in the Roman world, but like for the Greeks, it's not as clear, but yeah, like I said, um, at least from the organization of the house, um, the decoration of the house in this period, it seems 
not necessarily egalitarian because everybody's of different statuses, but like there is definitely some sharing of space and like it's not as like clear of a division. And I mean, thinking specifically about kitchens, since you mentioned that at the beginning, like, I mean, all of the kitchens I've seen seem to be about the same, um, you know, no matter what kind of house, no matter how big it is, no matter um, if there's an Andron or not, um, they seem to be kind of on the same level, um, identified usually by like a hearth um, or, um, I mean, cooking pots are very distinctive. They tend to have like burning on the outside, right? Because um, they're being used over a fire. So I think, yeah, in general, based on based on the architecture based on the stuff found in these houses um that would be kind of my my interpretation of of greek families in general i i thought i love that it's just really interesting um yeah i just i love this normality idea like just these things i haven't thought about in that realm of I mean, I know about the hearth. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I just, it's just so, I I just love this idea of like just regular people doing regular um, things and multi multifunctionality because it just seems so reasonable. Um, and yet, yeah, I think there is this assumption that like, they're like, of course, you know, people that long ago had to live like these completely different lives than us. And it's like reasonably like humans, human, you know, <laughs> like things change. Yes. But ultimately, like, yeah, humans, human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there are some things that are just sort of like deeply normal human things. And the main one would be like using spaces in a way that is practical and like <laughs> reasonable and like gets the best use out of like your space, but also <laughs> your time and and everything to do with that. Um, yeah, it's just really generally really uh, interesting and I'm kind of obsessed with all of this. So thank you. Yeah. Um, if you would like, I would also love if you wanted to talk about, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word that is in your website <laughs> name, um, but if you wanted to talk about that at all and share with my listeners, because I know a lot of my listeners are in school Um in university for for classics now a lot of them tell me that they did it because they started listening uh and oh. then i want to cry um so yeah i mean if you if you wanted to talk about that at all i think that it would be a really nice resource uh for a lot of my listeners yeah um so i uh yeah i started a blog in 2020 yeah i think it was in 2020 um notes from the apotheki um <laughs> so, uh, i was waiting to pronounce it for you <laughs> thank you <laughs> um and yeah so i mean uh the name comes from uh originally the blog was was conceived of as a, a ceramics blog um because i work on ceramics uh in the field and i was gonna make a whole blog about my work and then i decided that that was not um something that super excited me to write about i mean i like i like writing about it in like a scholarly way but it was it felt too hard to uh to sustain at the time um and then yeah and then like all of the black lives matter pro protests and all of the academic things that happened after that um made me want to start a blog about being um black indigenous and persons of color in the field of classics and adjacent fields um and so i created this blog and um yeah it's it's about my experience as a graduate student mostly because i was a graduate student when i started it 
Um, now there are some things about uh, being a professor as well, but I try to, I'm trying to balance both um, still since I, it's still fresh and I still have lots of friends that are still in grad school. Um, and I know a lot of graduate students um, read it. And also, uh, yeah, in general, just giving advice to people um, based on my own experiences of things um, that I was not taught formally how to do. Um, I had and still have lots of questions about things. So I, I frequently um, draw from, yeah, those experiences of frustration and like trying to figure things out. Um, I, I think more now I, I ask uh, for inspiration from other people, um, especially on social media, because I mean, I can't, I can't cover everything, of course. Um, so I try to be responsive of what current need is and like what things people on my audience are struggling with. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been tough keeping up with it these days because starting a new job is, is, is a lot, but I, I still think about it a lot and I'm still writing. I just, um, I'm trying to find ways to, to, uh, make it sustainable, uh, whilst being a professor. And, um, and also another thing I forgot that I, I also do is I try, um, I've been featuring, um, other scholars of color in the field, um, mostly because they're interesting and cool. And I want to, um, let people know that they exist. Um, but also, you know, just giving students, um, students, faculty, like early career faculty, contingent faculty, um, uh, inspiration for like what is possible in the field um i i'm now one of those things that is possible in the field um uh, which is really um nice to hear from other people actually someone told me this on friday um that i am proof of what's possible with an archaeology <laughs> degree from undergrad so i was like yeah that's that's true um so yeah so that's kind of like the part of the point of the the bipoc features um on the blog as well um so i give advice, but I also like to highlight, um, other scholars in the field, um, that are, uh, that identify as BIPOC and, um, uh, just so that people in the, uh, in the field, like students, especially in the field, uh, don't feel like they're alone, um, and can see what is possible, what can be achieved. Cause you know, there are lots of people out there who are doing some great things and who, um, have made it through, um, what can sometimes be a really, uh, tough experience when you are, one of the only um, people of color in your classes, which I was uh, when I was an undergrad. And um, I know a lot of people still have that experience. So, yeah, it's a very white field. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's a very, very white field. So and I mean, like, yeah, I it's also like a difficult field, I think, with the way things are going, even without like also then being somebody if you're like, in a minority to the point of the like, yeah, being like one of the only people of color in a class, like that would be um, a lot to deal with. Cause it's fucking stressful enough without mm -hmm. adding that. So, you know, like I obviously can only imagine cause I'm very white, um, <laughs> but like, yeah, like it, it, it's like, I mean, just even being, even navigating academia broadly, like there's a huge reason why I didn't continue on. Um, it's just that I like, as somebody who, again, like is very white, but is very neurodivergent and also just didn't feel like I fit into the brain of everybody else. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, it's, it's fucking difficult in a, in a field like academia. So it's very nice that you uh, are like providing this, but also like just, I think people also just like want to hear that somebody else has had a really similar experience yeah. and then, yeah, like 
you know, has become somebody that is like a great example of what you can do with that career <laughs> and everything. So um, it's lovely that that you have that uh, yeah, and great. that it's available. And but yeah, no, I just I think that's like it's a great thing to have. Um, like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to use my own experience because it's obviously not the same. But I also just like even like I went to university like 12 years ago and just like the we graduated 12 years ago. Jesus. Um, <laughs> but just like the the difference in terms of like the Internet and social media access to other people, I think, is so beneficial. And so I just think it's great, especially in the context of of being a person of color, BIPOC generally, like of, of having like an access just to other people is mm-hmm. so huge. And I fucking love social media and and just the general Internet for that. Like, I think it makes a lot of people a lot less alone. Um, so yeah, I just want to make sure that my listeners know about that. I'm going to link to it in the episode's description. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely feel the same way. I probably would not have ever even begun to consider doing something like this. And it's been like three years now and I'm still doing it, which is wild. Um, but yeah, if it hadn't been for, yeah, that first year, um, in 2020, like everybody just kind of banding together on social media and like really starting to come out of, not hiding but like coming out of their shells I guess because like I feel like before um that like fall of 2020 I did not know anyone else in the field that was (laughs) person of color which is wild because it's like obviously they are out they were out there like they're they're they don't not exist but um I think once I was like hmm like does anyone does anyone exist um and I like put that out on Twitter and then like a like 50 people responded I was like oh yeah like they're we're out here and we need some more like we need some like there needs to be more um exposure to these people um especially in light of like a lot of really problematic early attempts to do the same thing um i can't tell you how many times i was asked to talk about things that i do not study because i'm just a black person oh my god Um, but yeah that i mean luckily i think people have have learned and have stopped asking um but yeah there were a lot of those where i was like i don't think i am qualified to talk about these things but thank you for thinking of me like can i introduce you to the word tokenism like (laughs) yeah maybe we should do some research (laughs) that's wild yeah it's yeah i mean 2020 2020 i think was like a really interesting year obviously for a lot of reasons uh you know pandemic being a main one Mm -hmm. but i think that it like like it's just interesting to hear that that was the year for you because that was the same year that i got like sort of welcomed into classics twitter and Mm -hmm. then started talking to people like you and that has become my favorite thing about the podcast because just really cool chill academics want to come on my show and I but 2020 was an interesting year for like I think connecting people um and so you know obviously it's like a different situation in yours is like finding sort of like a community in this space and I just think that's that's generally great um and the internet is fun and if I keep talking I'm just going to keep doing my rambling thing where I just uh go off so I'm just going to say <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. This was seriously so much fun. I'm so excited for nerdy everyday life. Um, and it, yeah, it was a joy. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, Well, um, is there any other things like I'm going to link to um, your blog on the episode, but did you want to share any social media or where to follow you just with my listeners at all? Um, I think the only thing I have left 
<laughs> now is Instagram, um, which is just uh, Instagram.com slash apathiki blog. Um, I think um, I know my I know my handle is apathiki blog, but I I'll don't know what they, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the whole link is. Um, <laughs> but yes, I think that is the only place I act- actively use anymore. Um, Twitter, uh, whatever it is now, um, I do not use <laughs> or check anymore. Um, but yeah, that's the main place I am. Uh, I can be found. Um, and yeah, I'm that, yeah, I'll be posting things hopefully more often in 2024, but, but right now there are lots of resources available for people. I mean, that's the one thing to remember, like before you, cause I, I've heard you say that a couple of times of like, I feel like you feel bad for not posting more, but you've got lots in the back, which yeah. is, I think a really important thing to remember. I just, as somebody who also feels a lot about whether I'm not doing enough. That's why I'm saying that. Which <laughs> is purely out of experience. Yeah. Um, but like when people find that stuff, it's so great because they have so much to go through. So it like often feels to you, I think, that you're like, oh no, I haven't done it in a while. But then it's like, oh, you have three years that people are discovering. So they're they've got lots to look at. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it was very, very fun. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks again for having me. So happy to. Oh, you wonderful nerds. Thank you all so much for listening. My life has been a complete and utter uh, disaster over the past, I would say, two months in various ways, um, which is why I think the introduction uh, and outro of this sound a little unhinged. Apologies. I was not able to script something ahead of time. So here we are. But the conversation I had with Nadira, that was a little while back now. So I feel like I was a slightly more functioning adult. Um, but truly, this was such a fun conversation. I mean, Nadir and I had fun talking in person, uh, which is why I knew that this would be great. So I'm so grateful to her for coming on and talking about drinking and the Andron. I kind of lost my mind. Utterly fascinating. Oh, and all those little um, Rytons, Rita. God, they're weird. You should Google them. They're just such a thrill. Honestly, everything about ancient Greek pottery and and culture is just wonderful. And the more I get to learn about the everyday lives of just like regular old people, the better. This was the perfect episode for that. So read more from Nadira uh, on her blog, Notes from the Apotheki, which I have linked to in the episode's description and which she taught me to pronounce. Thank you. Uh, And also on Instagram, also linked in the episode's description. And for my own selfish reasons, you have a little bit more time to submit questions, comments, character requests, screaming at me for not covering a certain character. You have time to submit those for the New Year Q&A episode. Just head to mythsbaby.com slash questions and get them in. I welcome everything. If it's weird or there's some other reason I don't want to read it on the air, that'll be different. But you are welcome to submit it. Thank you all. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, my assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. Oh, Laura is wonderful. Michaela's wonderful. I have a great team. It's really cool and nerdy. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where normally you'll get bonus episodes. I was incapable uh, the past couple of months because... I can't even tell you. Like, I just feel like everything is uh, crumbling around me. But things are looking up, hopefully, maybe. (laughs) Thank you all.
I am Liv and I love this shit. Like really everyday people. Oh my God. Bring me everything there is possibly to learn about them. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.